iPhone is locked until you look at it and it recognizes you. Nothing has ever been simpler, more natural, and effortless. We call this Face ID. Welcome to Moonshot. I'm Christopher Lawson. And facial recognition has become a staple for many major smartphones. You look at your phone, it recognizes you, and then it unlocks. But how much trust are we willing to put in these facial recognition systems? To make Face ID possible took some of the most advanced technology we have ever created. And much of it is packed right up here into this tiny little area at the top of the display. We call this the True Depth Camera System. Now, Apple's True Depth camera system may be complex, but their technology is isolated to your smartphone. But what if facial recognition was used in a much broader way? Well, if you live in any major city, chances are your face is captured on cameras tens or even hundreds of times every day. These surveillance cameras are being watched by someone who is usually sitting behind a desk, looking out for what they think is shady behaviour. What if it wasn't a person, but an AI? that was watching you and everyone else instead. Well, with the rise of better facial recognition algorithms and higher quality cameras, this is quickly becoming reality. Facial recognition technology is a type of biometric identification, and it's quite similar to iris or fingerprint scanning. However, it is much less invasive and easier to use on large groups and a lot of law enforcement agencies are looking to implement facial recognition technology for this very reason. So do we as humans place too much trust in these automated systems? Okay, I'm here to try out the biometric mirror. Stand in front of the camera, pull hair back, look directly into the camera, start. It's finding my face. I've come to the Ian Potter Centre at Melbourne's National Gallery of Victoria, and there's an art exhibition by body architect Lucy McRae. And as part of this exhibition, there is one installation called Biometric Mirror, which is part of a collaboration with the University of Melbourne. And it's really trying to push the boundaries of facial recognition technology and the ethics of these artificial intelligence systems when it comes to identifying character traits on an individual. You can see number of dot points and it's kind of triangulating those points onto my face. So let's do an analysis. As you stand in front of the biometric mirror, it kind of takes a photo of your face and then starts analysing you as an individual. It's trying to work out whether you're happy or sad, whether you get angry. 11% angry. Interesting. And if you believe everything you read, it can be quite scary. Weirdness, 90%. Biometric mirror in itself is an interactive installation um, that allows people to stand in front of a camera, look at uh, literally their reflection on a large screen in front of them, and really, yeah, witness the reveal of their psychometrics. Um, so really look at the psychometrics as they are identified by an AI that we developed and that lives in the cloud. This is Niels Wouters, one of the creators of the biometric mirror. We take a photo of people, send it to our machine learning model in the cloud, and it feeds us back information about your demographics, so your gender and your age, um, also your ethnicity, and that's where it already gets quite interesting. But then it 
dives into the very personal characteristics, so it'll tell you how responsible you are perceived to be, how aggressive, how weird, how emotionally unstable, um, and a whole range of other characteristics. Um, at the moment, we've got about 14 of these um, yeah, psychometrics built into the system. Biometric mirror really feels like a look into your soul on the surface. But if you dig deeper, it kind of highlights all the issues that exist around facial recognition technology. And that's the way it was designed. This isn't meant to be real. It's meant to show you the problems with systems that you don't understand. We're at a really yeah, great moment in time where technology, where computing power actually enables us to do automated facial recognition, so connecting metadata to photos of, your, of someone's face or information about your face at yeah, tremendous speeds, but also running across massive data sets of thousands, millions, potentially even billions of people in, in a few seconds' time. The biometric mirror takes a scan of your face and then compares that to its existing database of images. Each of those images has a range of metadata tagged to them. So if it sees a lot of people that have your similar facial characteristics also tend to be quite aggressive, it might peg you as being quite aggressive. But that doesn't mean you actually are. It's a really eye-opening thing because obviously, um, full disclosure, it's rubbish. Uh, obviously, a face doesn't tell, doesn't tell me anything about who you are as a person, it might give me an impression. Uh, I might cross the road at night because someone who's, who's walking towards me might look aggressive in the middle of the night. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that person is aggressive, obviously. And I would hope that everyone realizes that. Um, surprisingly, not everyone realized that. The last step of Biometric Mirror was not just that reveal of information. It was also uh, a speculative, fictitious scenario. Imagine you are perceived to be a very irresponsible person um, and imagine that that's being used by a recruitment company to automatically exclude you for management positions. Or imagine that you're perceived to be uh, highly emotionally unstable and I'm your insurer and I would automatically propose uh, counseling services for you or I might increase your insurance fee. Um, and, and that was really the thought and the discussion that we wanted to uh, instill and, and that we wanted to yeah, promote, because these things happen already these days. Um, the average Joe might just be very unaware that these things happen, but all of a sudden now with a system such as Biometric Mirror, they can form an understanding of, um, yeah, of what happens in that space and how it could personally affect them. When Biometric Mirror was first installed, it would even rate people based on attractiveness, although that feature was removed for obvious reasons before it was displayed in the NGV. As Niels says, all of this data that Biometric Mirror spits out is complete rubbish. But after you've seen all that information, you were then offered the opportunity to create a perfect version of yourself, or at least what the biometric mirror AI thinks is the perfect version of you. Now it's mapping my face. Okay, now it's morphing my picture. And I look like an alien. There we go. Existing technology might enable the fast processing of facial recognition. However, it wasn't always this easy. When the technology first began back in the 1960s, it was an almost entirely manual process. 
operators would use one of the world's first graphing tablets to compile 20 measurements on a face, ranging from the width of the mouth to the distance between your pupils, and then feed those back into a computer. The computer would then compare with the pre-existing dataset before returning a match it judged to be the most likely back to the user. With this, computer-based facial recognition was born, albeit with a lot of manual work still required. It would take nearly 25 years before researchers were able to create an algorithm to do that work for us. In 1991, researchers used Eigenfaces, an algorithm to detect faces in photographs finally automating the facial recognition process. In these early days, facial recognition was still pretty hit and miss, with success rates that couldn't measure up to the human standard of around 97%. The CIA and law enforcement were understandably interested in this technology, as it enabled them to identify suspects automatically and en masse. While facial recognition can be useful for monitoring large crowds, it does create some ethical questions, which Niels says were inevitable. I think that's the challenge that we're facing these days. The technology is sold to us as a consumer as something that adds convenience to our very complex lives. But ultimately, it always turns into some sort of dodgy policing scenario. Maybe not always, but very often it turns into a sort of yeah policing and surveillance mechanism. And that's quite concerning, um, especially because it is and it remains a black box. You might see surveillance cameras in shopping malls, on trams, on trains, everywhere. Um, And that's fine. I think most people are quite okay with security cameras. I am personally, because they keep me safe uh, at night. But you don't know what happens behind the scenes, behind that camera. Is there a machine learning system hooked up to that that can automatically identify me by name? Um, I might not want... um, yeah, a public transport provider to always know exactly where I am as an individual by name. Um, Or a shopping mall, I might not want them to know who I am, where I live, what my demographics are, and where I am exactly in that shopping mall. Um, Because that information could be used for commercial purposes, for surveillance purposes. Um, Yeah, and I might not be a big fan of that. And coming up after this break... We'll put those ethical questions to someone who's actually rolling out this technology. Welcome back to Moonshot, I'm Christopher Lawson. And as we mentioned before the break, facial recognition technology is in wide use these days and is employed in all sorts of places. And of course, law enforcement are very interested. With the technology available now, cameras can read and track every face in a crowd in seconds, allowing governments or private businesses to track your movement anywhere you go. It seems like this technology will soon be unavoidable. But can we trust it? The first thing to stress is not all facial recognition is the same. And there's a lot of discussion around the world about the technology right now, and it kind of groups it all together. And it clearly isn't, isn't a one thing. 
That's Zach Doffman, and he's a founder and chief executive of Digital Barriers, a high-tech surveillance technology business that works with government and security agencies around the world. So what we're talking about in a security or from a security perspective, is very different to the technologies you'll see in an airport where you have the passport gates or on your smartphone when you're, when you're looking to unlock it. The challenge in a security perspective is what you're trying to do is you're trying to detect when people are in front of your cameras. You're trying to work out where their faces are, see if those faces match a watch list. And if they do, then you send an alert. And if they don't, you ignore them. It's as if they're never seen. According to Zach, the benefits of facial recognition technology outweigh any potential costs as it helps law enforcement and other agencies keep us safe. When you're able to make that kind of capability work, it's a really powerful tool that gives law enforcement the ability to look for threats to public safety, for dangerous criminals, uh, for terrorists, um, kind of that kind of proportionality. What it isn't and what it shouldn't be is an indiscriminate tool to just be used wherever, um, you know, wherever it's possible to, to do so. And what we've seen over the last couple of years are stories, particularly coming out of China, a lot of which are embellished, but if we put that to one side, what that's done is it's created a little bit of a fear factor amongst the public that somehow all of the CCTV cameras are going to be watching who's walking past, making notes and taking lists. It doesn't work that way at all. If you're not on a watch list, then the cameras will ignore you. They, in essence, won't even see that you've been there. And then the real debate should be, why would a person be on that watch list? What is the appropriate, um, what are the appropriate types of lists for the police and other security agencies to keep? Why might they want to see if people are in certain locations? Zach's ideal use case of facial recognition technology involves police matching live images to a pre-known database of suspects. And I want to talk about some of the issues with that shortly. But on a positive side... Facial recognition has been used to do some really great things. In 2018, police in Delhi, India, were able to identify nearly 3,000 missing children across the territory in just four days. Police were trialling the technology on behalf of the courts and compared 45,000 images of children to a missing persons database. Identifying these children meant that they could be reunited with their loved ones. India is now in the process of establishing a national facial recognition system to help aid police who struggle with crime due to the sheer size of the population. Index Faces, part of Amazon's recognition software, has been used by the non-profit organisation Thorn to identify and rescue trafficked minors across the United States. According to Amazon, Thorn has seen a 65% reduction in the time it takes to investigate cases, resulting in more rescues. Facial recognition has even been used to help identify American Civil War soldiers, whose identities have been lost to time. So there's clearly a lot of potential for facial recognition technology, if used in the right way. By a vote of 8 to 1, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors passed a regulation to ban the use of facial recognition technology by city police and other government departments. The new statute heads to the mayor next month for final approval. That's from a CGTN report in May of 2019. At the time, San Francisco became the first US city to ban the use of facial recognition technology by city officials and law enforcement agencies. Following San Francisco's lead, other cities across the country started banning facial recognition technology, including Oakland in California and Somerville and Brooklyn in Massachusetts. 
there's also growing pressure on Congress to ban the technology. Part of the concern is that facial recognition technology gives the impression of a police state, like everybody is being monitored all the time. There's also potential for police to manipulate the system to force a match to be found. All of this taken into consideration, it's probably no surprise that Zach, as someone who sells facial recognition technology, believes that facial recognition technology should be rolled out everywhere. It is categorically clear in my view that if it's used properly, facial recognition can help keep the public safe. If you talk to chief police officers in Australia, in the UK, in the US and anywhere else, they will tell you that they are fighting increasing crime rates, increasingly sophisticated threat actors, terrorism, cross-border crime, serious and organised crime, people and in, in, in children trafficking, sex crimes, a whole raft of, of, of awful behaviour and, and they're charged with, uh, with keeping us safe from all of that. Facial recognition can be a tool that can really help them, but it needs to be used properly. What we've seen is a, a lot of kind of fear, uncertainty and doubt around the technology that in many places has been wound up by elements within the privacy lobby that are sowing some of this narrative into the media. And that's created an environment in which we have seen some backlash against the technology. We've seen it banned in certain places, certain use cases prohibited. We step back from all of that. My personal view is if you take a medium to long-term view, the technology is clearly going to be out there because we're all going to be used to facial recognition to access buildings and get through airports and all the rest of it. So we're going to be used to uh, to the capability, but it needs to be regulated, it needs to be controlled, um, and, and it needs to be used properly. And right after this break, is facial recognition racist? In December of 2019, the National Institute of Standards and Technology published a report examining 189 facial recognition algorithms from 99 developers. They used the algorithms on four databases that included domestic mugshots, immigration applications, visa applications, and border crossings. Researchers were able to process more than 18 million images, with the algorithms looking for issues like false positives and false negatives. What they found, broadly speaking, is that if you are of African or East Asian descent, chances are you are 100 times more likely to receive a false positive than someone who comes from a European background. And women are more likely than men to be misidentified. However, one interesting finding comes from algorithms developed inside China. In that instance, a number of these algorithms saw lower false positive rates. This is unsurprising considering China's love for facial recognition technology. Part of the reason for this difference can be explained by the databases the algorithms were trained on. However, the issue is far more nuanced than that. So I put this question to Zach to find out what his position is on whether there is an inherent bias in facial recognition technology. Yes, so, so I think there's two parts to that answer. I think the first one is um, 
face recognition in general in terms of its level of accuracy. As I said before, it's critically important to have really good enrolled imagery. And what we've seen anecdotally is lots of examples of face recognition being heralded as misidentifying or being inaccurate, but we have no view as what the enrolled imagery was, where it would be used. So I think if we're going to, if we're going to, maybe, if we're going to test it, let's test it properly and make sure we understand how it's being used. And some of the, um, even the more formalized tests don't really operate in a real world environment. So it's, so what you find is the, the industry trains their algorithms to suit specific requirements. It's not indicative of what happens in the real world. The second thing you're touching on is, is whether there's, a, there's an inherent bias in, in AI. And there isn't. There's nothing particularly biased about AI. It's trained, right? So if there is a bias, that bias has been trained into it and can be trained out of it. That's critical to say. So you've talked about two different things. So the, the uh, controversy in the US is all about uh, its ability to recognize women and people of color. Those are the two areas that, that, that everyone focuses on. And they're different. So I think um, in terms of the, the, the gender mix within facial recognition, clearly it's all about the training data that you use and ensuring that there is absolutely no reason why you shouldn't have exactly the same level of accuracy on both. Now, people of color, there is, again, some of it is around training data and ensuring that the system is balanced and is trained on the demographics that it is likely to um, come across in the real world. There are some physics that are applied being candid, um, if a person has darker skin, the ability to detect imagery within that person's face in a real-world lighting condition is more difficult. Of course it is, um, as it would be for a darker or a lighter car. So that's all about the quality of the camera and how the detection algorithms work. But I think we understand all of that. Um, if we look at the accuracy of the systems today, compare it to where it was a year ago or two years ago, it is significantly better. Um, what there is now is a much better understanding of the way in which data sets need to be built and trained. It's not just about the numbers of imagery of images, it's how those images are marked up and the order in which they're applied to the system, the proportion. So in China, if I have, you know, I don't know, three or four hundred million Chinese faces and a hundred million Caucasian faces, even though I've got a hundred million Caucasian faces, I've still got such a mix towards the Chinese demographic that I skew the results of my technology. We understand all of that a lot better now. Um, it's not perfect. It's, it's incredibly accurate compared to where it was and will keep on getting more accurate. Facial recognition is a tool to support human beings. It's a, it's, a, it's a tool to support a frontline security or police officer. It doesn't make a decision in of itself. Um, so the question is, is it accurate enough to provide a level of assistance to those frontline officers that they wouldn't get otherwise? And that, I think, is clearly the case. In case you missed that, training data is vital to the effectiveness of a facial recognition system. The better the data and the more even the spread of people in the database, the more likely it is that you will receive an accurate match. But Neil says that facial recognition systems are definitely racist because the publicly available data sets in countries like Australia doesn't provide a representative sample of the actual population. It is. Well, a lot of the data sets that are out there at the moment and that feed into the artificial intelligence systems, they are inherently racist, but they're probably also inherently male-dominated, and that's simply because of the fact that people like myself have made these data sets, so Caucasian men. Um, and that's really concerning. We see it in the data set that we use, which is um, publicly accessible, I mean, for research purposes. Um, about 85% of the photos in our data set is, are of Caucasian people. Um, and I think about 65%, if I'm not mistaken, are men, so the other 35 uh, are, are women. 
But that leaves only a very small gap, so about 15%, if I'm not wrong, for four other races that our dataset identifies, which is Hispanic, Asian, African, and um, Middle Eastern. And that's that's concerning, because that's, that's five races. That's not an accurate representation of society, of the global society. Um, that's really concerning. We just don't have data. And yet we are rolling out these uh, these systems on, on a massive scale. Um, some of the issues that it poses, for instance, in Australia, with Indigenous Australians, they will most often be identified as African, which is obviously wrong. Um, so that's a really interesting discussion for us all to have. Um, how far do we want these systems to, to go? Do we really think and do we really want to assume that they can identify all of these characteristics? Um, and as far as gender is concerned, it's really a very interesting one. Um, as far as I know, all data sets that are out there only identify between male and female, which is a very binary system. It's it's most often yeah based on physiological structure of, of the face or of the body. But as a society, we've progressed way beyond that stage. We yeah we recognize diverse gender identities that are not physiological. So we just can't assume that AI and facial recognition systems can ever be fully inclusive. That's that's my point of view. This episode of Moonshot is hosted and edited by me, Christopher Lawson. Research assistance with this episode from our intern, Hamish Lindsay. If you've got topics that you'd love us to explore this year on Moonshot, send us an email to moonshot at lawson.media. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Moonshot Pod. And if you'd love to get your hands on some great Moonshot merch, head across to our Patreon store, patreon.com slash moonshot. We'll be back again next week with the next episode of Moonshot. Thanks for listening.